Bibles to Psalm 95. Psalm 95. This psalm is a call to worship and obey. A call to worship and obey. And try to keep, if you don't note it, make a mental note that worshiping, that worship and obey go together. We can't say we worship God and yet not obey Him. It's, it's a contradiction. To truly, obedience is the highest form of worship. And this psalm places a special emphasis on the worship of God, making it a worship psalm. But it's also a royal psalm, as we've seen starting with Psalm 93. It's also a royal psalm because of the way it acknowledges that God is the great king here in verse 3. And the psalm has three movements. And each movement shows an attitude or a tone of those who worship God. First, the worship of God in an attitude of celebration, verses 1 through 5. Secondly, the worship of God in a meditative attitude, verses 6 through 7. And then third, the worship of God in obedience, in verses 8 through 11. The theme, an exhortation to worship God. The author, unknown. This invitation, the invitation to give God joyful thanksgiving is made to everybody. Everybody's invited to do this. No requirements, no restrictions. There is never a bad time to worship God. The call of the God of omniscience, the all-knowing God and the God of mercy, it should, he should be felt. This call should be felt. And it should be responded to by every man made in his image. Every man is invited. And also, when I say man, I'm including woman. I'm just using man as just a kind of... Anyway, every man and every woman is invited to praise God the best that he can. The only thing that God doesn't accept in our worship is insincerity. Insincerity. It doesn't matter how imperfect we are. It doesn't matter how imperfect we might praise the Lord as long as it's sincere. That's what God looks at is our sincerity. Let's begin with, chapter, uh, with Psalm 95, verses 1 and 2. The psalmist says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. So this psalm starts out with a call to, notice, all men. And again, this is including women. All men everywhere to come and to worship the Lord. Because our God deserves our praise. Why? Because he's the rock of our salvation. Now, you know, if you've, if you've been a Christian long enough and you've been to a few churches over your Christian lifetime, you, you have probably experienced... Uh, different ways of worshiping the Lord. We can worship God quietly or with sighs and tears. But when I read scriptures, it seems that the natural and proper way to worship him is with joy and enthusiasm, with a liveliness. I mean, we should be alive. We should be excited because of the God that we serve. And we should serve him in that kind of an attitude with joy and a liveliness. 
You know, we're singing to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the God of heaven, the creator of the universe. And, and sometimes we sing our songs like we're in a funeral dirge, you know, oh, praise the Lord, you know. And, and we should be singing with joy and, and, and vigor. Charles Spurgeon said this, if joy was more general among God's people, God would be more glorified among men. The happiness of the subjects is the honor of the sovereign. Now, some of the th- signs of enthusiasm is singing. And you know that when you're in a good mood and just everything seems to be just, you know, all the cylinders are hitting, you're, you're a happy camper and, and you're singing. It's a sign of enthusiasm. A lot of the worship in the Old Testament and the New Testament includes a lot of singing. Because singing shows what's going on inside. Singing shows what's going on in the mind and in the heart. And Christianity is a feeling religion. Now, I said this morning concerning Thomas, and it's not feelings that we walk by. So when I'm talking about feeling, I'm not talking about how we live for the Lord. God has given us emotions. He's given us feelings. All right. So Christianity is a, is a feeling we should, we, you know, because we know the Lord we feel that joy. We, we feel that excitement because of that. That's why I say Christianity is a feeling religion. More specifically, singing expresses joy. And the heart of biblical Christianity is joy. You see, and if joy was more uh, general among the people, like Spurgeon said, you know, we'd, we'd honor God in a special way. There's a fantastic joy in our salvation. And an enthusiastic praise of God who's given us that salvation. Sin brings sadness. We saw that in David's case when he wrote in Psalm 51, 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. When he sinned against Bathsheba and he hadn't confessed it yet, he was miserable. And he said, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Joy in Galatians 5, 22 is one of the fruit of the Spirit. You see, if we're born again and we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that fruit, you know, some of that fruit is joy. The joy of the Lord, knowing that I'm born again. Joy is the result of holiness. That inward peace and sufficiency, that sufficiency of knowing that, you know, I'm going to be okay and I'm not going to be affected by outward circumstances. I'm not going to be affected by the trials and tribulations of life. Because I have that inward peace, that joy of Christ. We have Paul's experience he recorded in Philippians 4, 10 through 20, where he said, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. The key word is learned. Notice it isn't just a magical thing that happens. It's a learned state. And that's why God allows us many times to go through those times. Because through those tough times, we learn to be content. Because this is God's will for me. Or God's allowed it. arranged. Everything's filtered by God or through God. So this holy cheerfulness keeps him going, keeps us going in spite of our difficulties. Also in some churches, there's shouting. All right? It's okay that we don't shout. (laughs) But we should remember that some church traditions do shout. Like some charismatic churches. In other services, they say amen. And it's okay in the right place, but not after every sentence. And I've seen that. Every pastor said, every time, amen. Next day, amen, amen. Well, okay, in, in, in the right place at the right time, yes. But I don't think after every sentence. So 
the thing is, is there's a church for, uh, uh, there's a church for everyone. There's a church for however you like to express yourself. And that's Pastor Chuck used to tell us that. Because, you know, Pastor Chuck, you know, taught us biblically about worship. And some of these things he would say, you know, we don't do here. And then somebody would come and say, well, oh, you're quenching the spirit. Pastor Chuck, no, I'm quenching your spirit, not the Holy Spirit. And he would say, you know what, if you want to shout, hey, there's churches that want you to let you shout. You want to speak in tongues while the past, there are churches. That you, so, you know, find the church that makes you happy. We just don't do that here. And so, again, however you like to express yourself, you'll find a church that does that. But again, Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians in, in tw- chapters 12 through 14, where he talks about the gifts of the spirit. He teaches us that that that. Our worship shouldn't be about ourself. Look at me. I got the gifts. Look at me. I'm, I'm holy and I'm, you know, and I'm righteous. No, worshiping a God shouldn't be about me. It should be about the Lord. Worshiping the Lord. Again, shouting amen, standing during church service, all these things, they can be a distraction. And I've been to those places. And those things can turn a church worship service into a three-ring circus. And I've been there, and it scared the daylights out of me, especially when I wasn't saved. Think about it. You bring somebody to church. First of all, they're already anxious. They're already nervous about it. They're already uncomfortable. They're not sure what to expect. And, And if you have people shouting amen all the time, you have them standing, and you have them speaking in tongues, that. They're going to look for the nearest exit. And that happened with me and Pastor Rawl before I got saved. And he took me to Assembly of God right here in town. I grew up in the Catholic Church. Quiet, somber, you don't say anything. And you, you don't even move. I got smacked in the back of the head because I was all wiggling or fiddling with the, you know, the little missiles or the kneeler. And, you know, I just couldn't sit still. And then, you know, he invites me to church. I said, okay, again, I don't know what to expect. I've not gone to any other church but the Catholic Church. So I go to the Assembly of God, and oh, my goodness, you talk about the stream opposite. People praying out loud, amen, speaking in tongues. I almost walked out. I'm serious, I almost walked out. And when it was all over, Raul looked at me, and Pastor Raul looked at me and said, well, how did you like it? And I pointed my bony little finger, and I said, don't you ever ask me to go to church again. I was furious. I was just so, so uncomfortable. And I had a manager one time when I, when I used to work in the secular workplace. And, and he knew I was a Christian. He had gone to church one Sunday with a girl that he met. He pulled me aside the following Monday and he said, can I ask you a question? I said, well, sure. And I said, he said, you know, I went to church yesterday with a girl who invited me to go to church. He says, I was totally confused. He said some people were standing, some were speaking in tongues. He says, I am guessing that's what it was. He says, I was, he said, it was really distracting to me. And these were his words. He said, it was like a circus. He said, I will never go back. That's why I believe Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, 40, without a doubt, let all things be done decently and in order. And you know what? Don't blame the Holy Spirit for disorderly conduct, for uh, unedifying conduct. 1 Corinthians 14, 12 says, because you hear people say, well, I couldn't help myself. The Holy Spirit took over. Well, that contradicts what Paul says. 
Paul says, since you are so eager to have the special abilities the Spirit gives, he said, seek those that will strengthen the whole church. Worship is to edify the Lord and not puff up the worshiper. 1 Corinthians 14, 32, Paul said, and this is the scripture I wanted to quote to you when I uh, and said a minute ago about, again, saying the Holy Spirit took over. I couldn't help myself. In 1 Corinthians 14, 32, Paul said, remember that people who prophesy are in control of their spirit and can take turns. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the meetings of God's holy place. Paul said, look, you're in control of your spirit. Don't blame the Holy Spirit for, again, wild behavior and silly conduct, which a lot of churches or Christian churches do. And they blame it on God. The Bible doesn't say that. Then music can be can be, you know, involved in worship, as we know. This particular psalm here in Psalm 95, it doesn't mention any instruments that's used for worship. But other psalms do, like Psalm 150, which I learned very early in my Christian life. Because in a lot of churches, they don't allow guitars or, or any loud instruments. And yet Psalm 150 says to praise the Lord on stringed instruments. Well, what's a guitar? It's a stringed instrument. Psalm 150 verse 3 and 5 says, praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the lute and the harp. Praise him with the timbrel and dance. Praise him with the stringed instruments and flutes. Praise him with the loud cymbals and praise him with clashing cymbals. We praise God with words. But what's important, we first have to hear his words so that we know who it is that we're worshiping and why we're worshiping him then we can use our words to tell him how much we love him and adore him you don't want to give praise and worship to that which isn't god then we can praise him with thanksgiving thanksgiving is one of the ways to use words to worship the lord and if we have and if we've been able to worship the Lord joyfully, hey, it's only natural that we should want to invite others to do the same thing. Psalm 47 says, come, everyone, clap your hands, shout to God with joyful praise. So it's an invitation to everyone to come and praise the Lord. Look at verses three through five now. For the Lord is the great God and the great king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are also his. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. So in verses one and two, we saw a few ways how we can worship God. Now, in these verses three through five, we see a couple of important reasons why we should worship God. First of all, how about because the Lord is the great God, verse three says. The Lord is the great God. And we can show appreciation for people and praise others. But worship belongs only to God. Like I said, we can appreciate people. We can praise them. But worship belongs only to God. But we can't worship him until we have a proper sense of who he is. And verses four through five, see him as the creator. That's a good place to start. And because he's the creator of everything is the first reason to worship him in verses one and two. How about he's great because he's eternal. God is great because he's eternal. Man depends on him for his immorality, immortality. For our immortality, for eternal life, we depend upon him. He's the same yesterday, today and forever. He's eternal, which means he must also be indestructible. How about our God is great because he's omnipotent, all powerful. 
creation in all of its works and greatness and all of its magnificence, it's a demonstration of his omnipotent power. Remember in Genesis, he spoke and it came into existence. His power is also seen in upholding everything that he created. He commands the suns and the moon when to set and when to rise. He commands the planetary systems and the planets. They move in obedience to his sovereign will. Paul said in Colossians 1, 16 through 17, For through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on the earth. He made the things we can see and the things that we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else. And this, here it is. And he holds all creation together. He holds all of creation together by, the, by his word. All Jesus would have to say is world fall apart and it would fall apart. How about God is great because of his infinite love? And Adam and Eve proved how good God is in the Garden of Eden because we see where his generosity was. It was just poured out upon Adam and Eve with every good thing. When God created the garden, the, 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 the living environment for Adam and Eve, you see that there was nothing there that could hurt them. There was nothing there that could mar their relationship. God lavished his love upon them. Nothing there that could hurt them. The redemption is another uh, demonstration of his his great love for for Adam and Eve, for, for, for mankind. The redemption of this fallen world is another proof of his divine love. Where the Bible says angels desire to look into and they're eternally interested in redemption because they don't experience redemption. Jeremiah 31 3 says, yes, I have loved you. God said with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. How about God is great because he's wonderful. He's wonderfully great in holiness. There's none holier. All the works of God's creation, the holiness of his laws, the times of his providence, that is when he does certain things, the influences of the Holy Spirit and the judgment and the downfall of wicked men and devils, they make it known that God is holy. How about God is great because he's incomprehensibly great in omniscience, all-knowing. He's the great king above all gods on the existence, greatness, and government of God. He's great because he has the right to to the kingdom of God, the right of eternal priority. He created it. It's his. That's why he has the right to it. There can only be one absolute and eternal ruler. So there's only one supreme and sovereign king. How about he's the great God because he has the right of eternal sufficiency. In other words, his throne is forever and ever. It's established in his infinite wisdom. It's upheld by his everlasting strength. And through all the ages of time, it stays the same. How about the right of universal inheritance? Under, the man, under God's management, no law can be bad or defective. No faithful servant goes unprotected and no enemy can be victorious. You see, God's omnipotence will stop all attacks and survive all overthrows until his right to reign shall be undeniably acknowledged and the God of everlasting sovereignty is gloriously magnified. How about his, the extensiveness of his empire? 
He reigns in the kingdom of nature. God reigns over all matter, whether it's non-living or living. He watches, an, he, he watches one atom just as much as he watches over man and the whole world. He reigns in the realm of providence. He reigns. He reigns in the realm of darkness and damnation. He, he, he reigns in hell. Just the same as he reigns in the realm of grace or the protection and complete victory of his church. He reigns in the realm of glory, the heaven of heavens, which is the home of all the saints. Verse 5 says, notice, God owns the ocean. How much of it? How about all of it? <laughs> you know the extent? The surface of the earth is said to be 200 million square miles. And of these 200 million square miles, more than two-thirds are supposed to be water. So that the surface of the sea may be 140 million square miles. How deep is it? Some of it is beyond all calculation. Now the depth may be measured by soundings in some parts. But a great part of the ocean is bottomless. No end to it that man knows of. What a fitting symbol of the immensity of the one who made it. The ocean can also be thought of as a symbol of eternity. No end. That vast, endless eternity that we're all moving toward. And before long, we're all going to pass into it. How about the boundaries and the limits of the sea that are set by God? Jeremiah 5.22 says, Do you not fear me, God says? Will you, tremble at my, will you not tremble at my presence who have placed the sand as the bound of the sea? Isaiah 40, 12, God said, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And this is, a, an, a, a, for me, when I read this, I stopped and thought about that. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And I looked at my hand like this, and I thought of it, my hands being filled with what? Do it sometime. Go, when you're not doing anything, fill your hands with water. And look at that. And that's the ocean to God. That blew me away. In my puny little mind, that blew me away. Looking at that water in the hands, that's the ocean to God. Showing the immensity and the vastness of our God. And and we worry about the little problems that we have in our life. The ocean's inhabitants. Again, he owns the ocean. the, The ocean's inhabitants. He owns them. Even though on the surface, when you look at the surface of the sea, for the most part, you don't see a whole lot of life. And yet... The ocean contains a multitude of living creatures that no man can count. And there's far more creatures in the ocean than all the species of animals that live on the land. And what about the ocean's usefulness? When we talk about the wonderful benefits that the world has gotten from the oceans, there's one that's even better than all of them. And probably one that most of us don't think about. I surely didn't. How about the gospel? Which had to have been brought to our country by ship. And and maybe as early as the days of the apostles. And most likely by some British princes and nobles who had been prisoners in Rome. Where it's thought they were converted by the ministry of Paul. We owe the gospel to the great and countless number of improvements that have made our land far superior in many ways and areas. We owe that to the gospel. Verses 6 
in the first part of verse 7. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God. So a good reason to worship God is because He is our beloved shepherd. God didn't just create the flowers and the trees and the mountains and the oceans and the animals and everything else. He also created us. Think about that. I think, why in the world would he do that? Psalm 100 verse 3 says, It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. God made us. Therefore, God has every right to to, to be our father, to be our God. God rules all people. And each of us is demanded individually to acknowledge and worship him. All men everywhere are called to recognize a common origin. Hey, we're all created by God. To recognize a common supremacy, which is God above all. Confess a common need. We all need God. Condemn a common danger. That is sin. And we need to avail ourselves to that common salvation. Not that it's common, but we all can have that salvation if we want it. We are called to worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. And you know what? We're called to do that today. Look at the second part of verse 7 and verse 8. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. The time that you and I are given to worship him is now. He said, if only you would listen to his voice today, today is the perfect time that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit exhorts. Today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today is a time of responsibility. Every man, every woman is under an existing need as a subject of God to obey the Lord today. Having rebelled against his God, every sinner is under the law to repent of their sin today. And also remember that today is a time of opportunity. You may not have that opportunity ever again. Today, you have an open door for you to approach God. You know what? That makes it a very special day, doesn't it? Today is a day of good news. Take advantage of it. Take advantage of the day, of that opportunity. And remember that today is a limited time only. Today is a limited time only. Hebrews 4, 7 says, He, God, designates a certain day. And today will not last forever. Today is just a day. And today is an an encouraging word because it's a time of promise. It's right now. Because you see, when God says to a man, come to me today, what God is saying is, hey, I have given, I've got something for you. I've made an appointment just for you to meet with me today. He hasn't ever made an appointment with any man and said, hey, I'll meet with you tomorrow. But he's made an appointment to speak with you today. If you'll listen to his voice. The voice to be listened to is his. Remember that the voice of God is the only voice of authority. And God has a right to speak to you. Why? He's created you. Will you listen to your creator? Will, will those who, who he has nourished 
and fed, will they turn a deaf ear to him who is the giver and the sustainer of life? When God says today, don't dare tell him, no, not today, maybe later. The problem is you aren't guaranteed later. But that's exactly what people say when they ignore the call to repentance. They're saying, later, God. His voice is the voice of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. His voice is the voice of power. The Holy Spirit still says to man today, the one that says today can make today for you the best day of your life. It's a day of kindness. It's a day of softening. And when you answer the call to repentance, and again, you experience that kindness and that softening, it will continue till no longer your heart is like a stone. His voice is a promising voice. When he says, seek the Lord while he still may be found, he's promising you that you will find him. When he says he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, he promises that reward. You'll find him. So listen to his promising voice. His encouraging voice. Because it will take away all the unbelieving fear out of you and it will drive Satan away better than David's harp drove the evil spirit away from Saul. The evil that you really have to worry about is not listening to his voice. Because it results in a hardened heart. You know, every time you say no to the Lord, it like sets a pattern in your, in your, in your, in your mind, in your behavior. Every time you say no, it becomes easier and easier and easier to say no to the Lord until it doesn't matter anymore. You have no conviction of the Spirit anymore. And you just, you're done with Him. It will be a serious sin if you do. Within the sound of God's loving voice, His call and His offer of mercy, the sinner is hardening his heart. If you say no. And it's a greater sin than, in some people than others. Like in Israel's case. Because you see, depending upon how much light you have, how much knowledge of the gospel you have, it becomes a greater sin. The greater the knowledge, the greater the sin when you reject him. Greater will be the judgment. This awful sin can be committed in a lot of ways. Some harden their hearts by choosing not to feel. Some by wishing to wait. Some by hanging out with the wrong company, evil company. But this sin will bring very, very terrible consequences. We read here in verse 11, He swore in His wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Isaiah 48, 22 says, There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. And a lot of people are needing rest today. They're looking for rest. But you see, you can't have it until you give in to God. Many are not at peace right now. And you never will be as long as you have a hard heart. Look at verse 9. He said, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. When he was talking about them rebelling in the wilderness and they weren't heeding his voice, he said, they tested me. 
as much as they could, they tempted God to change His way to let them have their way, even though, even though God can't be tempted with evil. And He will never yield to wicked requests. God's way is perfect. And when we want Him to change it, to our way, to please ourselves, we're guilty, we're guilty of tempting Him. And, and we do it in vain because it ain't going to happen. Notice in verse 9, he says, when your fathers tested me, notice, they tried me as well, though they saw my work. He said, your fathers tested me and they tried me. In other words, they, 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 they put me to needless tests. They wanted me to do more miracles. They made new demands of me. They wanted new signs. They wanted me to do new signs in their presence. Don't we also do that when we're angry at God and we ask God to, to, for a lot of signs to show that, that you know, he loves us? Other than the signs he's always, he shows us every day of every hour. Don't we have a tendency to demand, demand special signs? With the idea in our hearts that you know, if they don't come like we asked, we won't believe very much like Thomas this morning. Unless I see, I won't believe. Again, like when Donnie Thomas said, I will not believe until I see the wounds in his hands and his feet. It's true that the Lord is very lowly. And he often gives us great signs of his power. But you know what? We shouldn't require them. We shouldn't need them. Our steady faith is due to him who is so constantly kind. After so many proofs of his love, it's, it, it's a sign of ungratefulness to want him to keep on proving it himself to us. You know, if we're always testing the love of our husband and wife, oh, prove to me you love me. I've been married for 45 years. Prove to me you love me. Because we're still not convinced that they love us after many years of faithfulness. Guess what? We're going to wear out their patience. Friendship only flourishes in an environment of confidence. But man's suspicion will eventually kill it. I mean, should our God, who's true and unchanging and cannot lie, be doubted by his own people day after day after day? After a while, this provokes him to anger. Notice again, verse 9, he says, When your, your fathers tested me, they tried me. Notice even though they saw my work. They tested me again and again, and for 40 years they did this. Even though each time God's work was sure evidence of his faithfulness, nothing convinced the children of Israel for very long. I mean, he'd bring water out of a rock. He'd rain down manna from heaven. He, he was, they, they were led by a, a cloud of, uh, by day and a pillar of fire by night, and Two days later, Lord, show us that you're here. Show us that you're real. Show us that it's really you, Lord. Prove your love for us. Their shoes never wore out. I mean, come on. Forty years, he says, man, I put up with this. He gave them sure evidence of his faithfulness, but yet nothing, nothing convinced them for very long. They saw the wonders that he did. They praised him. 
But soon they forgot his, the works of his power and they began to clump, complain about him, about something else. Fickleness is bound up in the heart of man. And unbelief is our constant sin. We're always wanting some kind of a sign or we waver in our believing. This is no small offense to God and it will bring big time judgment. Verses 10 and 11. Here it is, look at, for 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Israel, Israel's behavior was marked by ignorance and error. He said, they don't know my ways. Now there are some things that we can't know because we have limited knowledge. We have a limited ability and there are other things that God doesn't choose for us to know. And there are other things that it isn't in our interest to know. God will never blame us for things that we can't know. But when the most important things are shown to us and the best ways offered for knowing them, then ignorance is a big crime. This was Israel's case. Error was another one of their crimes. Ignorance produces error. Jesus said in Matthew twenty two twenty nine, you are mistaken. Why not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God? There are two kinds of errors. There's error of judgment and error of heart. Errors of judgment. The heart may be right with God, but wrong opinions distort that judgment. But errors of the heart are the most deadly and destructive. You see, when the affections are distorted and the heart wanders from God. This was Israel errors, Israel's error. And this error in their heart brought about error in their life. The effect produced by this behavior. Forty years I was grieved with this generation. God is aware of our behavior. He knows our behavior. He sees everything that we do. He sees all of our actions every single day, every night. He sees them for what they are. We don't fool him. Ignorant and erroneous behavior is very offensive to God. And he grieves like the father whose emotions ache over the miseries of a child. Jeremiah 31, 20. Is not Israel still my son, my darling child, says the Lord? I often have to punish him, but I still love him. That's why I long for him and surely will have mercy on him. Now, God exercises, as we know, man, he exercises a whole lot of patience. With his children. Acts 13, 18 says, Now for a time of about 40 years, notice he put up with their ways in the wilderness. I like how Acts was, he put up with them. What a what a patient God. He put up with us. He put up with the children of the wilderness for 40 years. They deserved punishment. He says, those whom I swore in my wrath, whatever patience God, patience God may exercise towards his people, if you continue in your son, guess, sin, guess sooner or later, it's going to bring punishment. And I'm going to finish with, again, the example in Genesis 6, 1 through 7. Remember the sons of God, they saw the beautiful women and, 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 and they took and made them their wives. The, the, God, the sons of, of Seth and the sons of Cain, there was mixed marriages, the men, women, uh, the men and the women. Again, the godly line of Seth mixed with the ungodly line of Canaan and they abandoned their devotion to God. 
And the Lord said, you know what? My spirit's not going to put up with humans for a long time. He says, they're only mortal flesh. And then he said, in the future, their lifespan's going to be no more than 120 years. And it says, the, law, the Lord saw the extent of man's wickedness on the earth. And he says, he saw that everything they thought about or imagined was consistently, totally evil. Thus the flood. And it says in Genesis 6, 1 through 7, it broke his heart. And the Lord said, I'm going to wipe this human race that I have created off the face of the earth. And you know what? God's going to do it again. During the great tribulation. Those who don't repent. Those who don't accept the gracious redemption of the Father through His heavenly, through His uh, um, His, his heaven sent Son, will experience that great judgment of God. And as it says here, the psalmist says, "And they shall not enter My rest." Father, we come before You to thank You for this beautiful chapter, Lord. Father, a beautiful chapter about Your worthiness, Lord about the God of all gods, the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. There's none like you. There's none above you, Lord. There's none that come close to you. Satan even is, isn't even a, a formidable foe to you, Lord. We're so thankful, Father, for who you are. We're so thankful for your patience and your love. <coughs> your goodness towards us, God, when we're so undeserving. When we test you and we try you, Lord, even though we see your good works, God. So, Lord, may we just take this psalm to heart. May it be one that we read over and over again, Lord. Father, we thank you. Lord, bless our time together and, and God bless our fellowship now as we prepare to go home, Lord. Protect those on the road and get them home safely, Father. We thank you, Lord. Bless our week as we begin uh, tomorrow, Lord, a new week. May we, again, may we live for you, God. May we give you glory and honor in our lives. And Lord, may we live the words. May we worship truly and obey. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.